Good morning, everybody. How we doing? Yeah, it's good to see you. It's going to be an interesting morning because I just realized now that I didn't print my sermon out for my wife who's doing slides. So uh, this will be a test in our relationship. No big deal. Right? Yeah, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I'll cut the tension in the room. I get it. Uh, if you're coming in now, you're looking. Matt's not wearing jeans. He's got this weird sweater thing on. We're gonna we're gonna nerd out. You're right, but you'll be okay. It'll be okay. There, I'll get you out in time still to get that good, uh, the good table at Cracker Barrel. Uh, you know, the one next to the next to the fireplace with the server that actually cares about her job. Uh, you can you'll get you'll get there. You're good. You're good. So, um, this is an awesome Sunday with the boxes. Uh, I'm super excited. Anytime we get to do something tangible and, and, and spread the gospel through through something that is, is not words, uh, it, it's amazing. I'm super proud of us as a church for doing that. Um, and and, it, and aside from just serving in ways like that, there's other ways that you can get involved here that we encourage you all the time. Uh, groups is a huge thing for us right now. We're growing as a church. New families uh, are coming and attending on the weekend. And uh, we just want to take an extra moment to, uh, to, to, to put our groups out there. If you want to learn more about our church or more about what it means to follow Jesus, groups is the best way to do that. Whether that's second hour or getting involved in a home group, there's lots of ways that you can kind of take that next step and dive in from just the fun things that you hear here on Sunday morning into some deeper stuff that you can take into your life and, and that kind of thing. So um, that said, today we're going to talk, uh, we're going to continue in our, our series uh, uh, called Supernatural, uh, where we focused in on the Holy Spirit. Um, the last two weeks we've talked kind of high level, like who is the Holy Spirit and why do I need him in my life? And this week we're going to shift the focus a little bit and hopefully get a little bit more practical and unpack our response and, our, and what our responsibilities are um, given the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So essentially today I hope to answer the question, um, what do I need to do uh, to have a real and solid relationship, a, a connection to the Holy Spirit? So before we can jump in, in into all that practical stuff, um, the, it, it's helpful to understand the context into which the Holy Spirit comes into this scene. Right, um, we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit sometimes, or, or we don't necessarily sometimes, and we just assume everybody knows what we're talking about. Like we have a a, a, a thing in, in Christian culture where we d will use these words or use these terms, and we just assume, oh yeah, 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 whatever. Uh, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. One of the passions in my life ha has been studying the Bible. It's what I went to school for. I sell HVAC equipment now, so life kind of took a turn, uh, that kind of thing. But originally it was my dream to be a crusty old Bible professor and, and wear Gucci sweaters. Um, didn't happen. Didn't happen. I'm here. Um, what that passion grew into and how God has used that in my life is that I, uh, I, I'm super passionate about helping ordinary people read the Bible. And, and read it in a way that you can understand your own salvation better and, and, and understand what it means to follow Jesus, right? Because uh, it's easy just to say, hey, go read your Bible. But the reality is uh, it's, it's a 2,000-plus-year-old book, right? Uh, we'd have a hard time reading the Constitution, less le much less uh, this ancient book that's, that, that is, is from a completely different culture than ours. And so um, here's the deal. While we affirm that God is omnipresent, right, he's everywhere all at once, um, he shows up, the reality is he shows up at different times in history and does particular things I I I with particular people, and that only makes sense, or that, or that makes sense in a particular way with those people who actually 
witnessed it. And the, the stories of the Bible that we read represent the accounts of those things from the perspective of the people that witnessed them, right? Make sense? I've heard it said this way, the Bible was written for you, but not to you. Wow, she got it, right? Um, written for you, but not to you. The Bible's written for us, right? It's for our benefit to learn about God, to learn the message of, uh, uh, of the gospel, right? But it was, we are not the original readers of that, right? The, the original readers of the, of the Bible, they would have lived in different cultures than us and sometimes had wildly different expectations and assumptions uh, that, that if we don't account for those things, then we risk missing the meaning and the significance of what God's doing and ultimately what that means for us. So part of reading and studying the scriptures, right, is, is learning about the cultures into which they were written so that we can draw conclusions for our time that are in line with what that original intent was, right? Uh, you, you're now at, like, sophomore year of Bible college, right? We just jump right ahead in the second year of Bible college, right? Uh, if you get that, you're, you're heads, heads and shoulders above uh, a lot of folks. So this does a couple things for us a, a, as we kind of sort out uh, 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 reading the Bible and understanding our salvation. First, if, if we place the presence of the Holy Spirit, right, this idea of the Holy Spirit, what that means, in the greater context of, of salvation history, we can better understand and appreciate the significance of God's presence in our own life, right? If we understand what it means for God to be present in Bible times, then, then we, can, we can draw inferences and, and understanding into what it means for him to be present in our life, right? Um, if you think about it this way, social media and the modern news cycle, you know, with, with all of that, the way that we live life, like, we, we have a really, really short uh, attention span, right? And the, the stories that we find and we hear, they're always changing, right? We rarely, we're rarely offered a perspective on anything that spans more than a couple hours, much less, you know, years, right? But the people of the Bible, they were different, right? Things were slower then, and they were constantly telling themselves and retelling themselves the story of where they came from, so that they could stay connected with God, what God had done through history up until that point. They connected themselves up to the things that God had done up until that point. The other thing that helps us when we kind of locate things in a context is anytime you start talking about the Holy Spirit, you don't have to go very far, uh, you know, public access TV or, or in the depths of the Internet, and you can get into some real wonky theology, right? Uh, you get in this health and wealth stuff, this idea that, you know, uh, if you follow Jesus, right, Jesus wants you to drive a Mercedes. That's not true. Those things are incredibly expensive to maintain, right? He wants you to have a Toyota. It's just simple. Just, just get it out there, right? Seriously, like it gets, it gets funky real fast. And so if we understand what the people of the Bible expected and how what they experienced in terms of the Holy Spirit, then that helps us to temper our experience today. Somebody at that Mercedes dealership comes to you and saying goofy things, you can be like, why am I here? I should go somewhere else. Um, so let's jump in. To this week's topic. Um, during week one, we talked about uh, creation, and uh, I, I found that Genesis 1 is, is super helpful in, in creating kind of a baseline uh, for, for, for the expectation of salvation in general and, and the presence of the Spirit in particular. You can learn a ton just from the, the first couple chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1-1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. And it's no accident that this creative, a creative act is described as a combined effort. There's, there's no separation between God's act in, in creating the heavens versus his act in creating the earth. It's all at once. Heaven, the heavens and the earth, the heaven, heaven and earth, they were intended to be combined spaces where God and his creation exist together. That was his intention 
set forth in the garden. That was his intention for creation. He, he wanted to dwell with us. That was his desire. And if you study further into the creation story, it's God's plan for humankind to take the created order from the garden and actually spread it out all over the world, right? All, all over the rest of, of creation. That was, that's what's behind the command to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. It, it, it's to take the order that God instilled in the garden and put in us and, and to take that out and, and put that all over the world. We had a job to do from the very beginning, right? So the garden is a, a kind of a combined space, a God space and man space. It's no intention to separate those things natural from supernatural. If we do that, right, as modern people, we think of, you know, the natural is here. I can touch it. I can feel it. The supernatural, not so much. It's something else. We can talk about it in a different way, whatever. But, but that's not the way that the Bible talks about the created order. It's not how creation was supposed to function. E- even the curse couldn't overcome God's greater plan to, to, to bring back together what was separated because of sin, right? Uh, after, after, after Adam and Eve sinned, one of the first things that God does is he makes garments of animal skins for the man and the woman to cover the vulnerability that was exposed by sin, right? The first thing he does, he, he gives them something to cover up what was exposed. And even think like on a natural level, like animals that walk have the ability to walk on two legs, they tend to kind of amble around on four legs really because it protects all of this stuff that's otherwise vulnerable, right? God takes garments, he covers those things in, in, in a way. And, and it, this is actually the first death that's, reco- that's uh, 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 recorded in scripture. Do you realize that? The first thing to ever die was the animal that was killed to make coverings for Adam and Eve's sin. It's a huge foreshadow into the cost of dealing with the, with the problem of sin. It would require the death of many, many, many animals just to pass over that sin and then ultimately the death of Jesus to finally deal with that. Kind of cool. So if we fast forward from there to the time in which the story of creation was most likely written sometime after the Exodus, we get a glimpse uh, of the importance of these combined heaven and earth spaces. Uh, you see, in the ancient world, if you were to talk about God's space and man's space coming together in a combined space, you'd actually kind of think about a temple, right? This would have been in the forethought of, of the minds uh, of the Israelites as they inhabited the promised land, first with the ta- tabernacle, and then second with the, with the temple. Central to the camp and later in Jerusalem was the, t- the tabernacle or the temple. It was in the middle of, of their living space where God was present in such a, uh, such a way that literally the priests couldn't enter God's space on the penalty of death, right? It would kill them if they were to enter in where I, God actually dwelled. So this temple represents God's presence, right, in the center of camp, in the center of town. And, and it does kind of two things. First, God's presence in the center of the Jew- Jewish community represents the hope that God will one day restore his good creation and unite his space and man's space all over the world like it was in the garden, right? It's essentially what was promised with God's covenant to Abraham, that through him all mankind would be blessed. When the Jews looked at the temple, then they would be reminded that this was the promise that God made to Abraham, and, and it was their hope to be a part of the fulfillment of that promise one day, right? That's why we hang around the temple. That's why it's the center of our culture, that kind of thing. But on the flip side of that, the temple was also a very real reminder of, of the separation that remained at that time between God and man, 
There were divisions in the temple, right? There were places that Gentiles and women could go, that, uh, uh, that and places where they couldn't go, that Jewish men could go. There were places that priests, only priests could enter. And then the Holy of Holies in the center where God was actually thought to, to, to actually reside, actually be his presence to be there, that, that could only be entered by the high priest only at certain times of the year, one time a year, and, and, and there was a life or death penalty that would come if you didn't take the proper steps of purification to, to, to make that entrance possible, right? It was such a big deal that the, the high priest robe at the bottom had these little bells on it, and they tied a rope to his leg, and if dude went in there and hadn't done all this stuff, you'd hear those bells ring, his buddies on the outside got to pull him out. There's another one, right? Didn't do it right. Just pay attention to details, right? It was a high-stakes game. You couldn't just willy-nilly go in and out of the presence of God. Right? You had to do it a particular way. had to follow the rules. So the temple at the same time was a hopeful image that one day God's people would be united with him. They could come into his presence. But it was also a reminder that today wasn't that day. Right? Something still had to be done. This is even further complicated by the fact that this is real nerdy Bible history, but you should go check it out. You should read your Old Testament. Uh, prior to the Babylonian exile, Ezekiel actually describes the spirit of God leaving the temple never to return again. So if you remember back to our study of Nehemiah where the, where the Jews come back from that exile and, and they re rebuild the wall and they rebuild the temple, there's never any mention of, of God's spirit coming back and dwelling in that temple. And certainly nothing like what you read in 1 Kings 8. Go back and read 1 Kings 8. Th th this is where God's, God's spirit comes and inhabits and fills the temple. It looks nothing like what anything is described really anywhere, but certainly not in, in this new temple with Nehemiah. Malachi was the prophet during this time uh, of Nehemiah. He writes in Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Does that sound familiar? You heard that anywhere? This was 500 years before John the Baptist begins his ministry and sets up the environment of the expectation that is the backdrop of Jesus and his message of the coming of the kingdom. It's the expectation that God would return to his people. Everyone knew he wasn't there. This expectation that he would return, that his spirit would one day return and be with his people. So more than a message of personal salvation, right? The gospel is the message of the coming of the kingdom of God. Right? This is real basic stuff. It's the announcement that God is finally bringing his space and man's space back together and restoring his good creation as he intended in the garden. You're like, what does this have to do with the spirit? We're getting there. We're getting there. Trust me. So it's important that we understand this because Jesus' message is not sometimes what we hear like the gospel boiled down to, like, follow me and I'll make sure that you go to heaven when you die. Right? It's bigger than that. It, it, it's that the kingdom has come and God's putting his creation back together. And so this is why you see Jesus doing certain kind of things that he does. He's, he heals the sick. Right? Again, something that comes with being in the presence or around God, right? That's not something that man can do. He forgives sin. Again, something that's connected with the function of the temple and the sacrificial system. He chases the money changers out of the temple. And, and if you look at, at what he quotes, he says, you've turned, my house sh should be a house of prayer for the nations, right? Talking about the, the, that fulfillment of, of that covenant with Abraham, that the nations would come together and worship together, right, one day. And then when challenged by the Pharisees, Jesus goes so far as he says a provocative thing. If you destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. They think he's talking about the actual temple. He's talking about his own presence there. Like, this is God's presence, and the grave can't hold it. 
you can, you can kill me, but th- that will not be the end of this story. So Jesus shows up doing temple things, right? Doing God's space, man's space things and announcing that God's expected return, the return of his spirit is at hand and that it looks nothing like what you expected. But nonetheless, the coming of the kingdom and, and, and the, the setting right of creation includes God's presence returning to his creation as promised. And that's exactly what the disciples would have heard as Jesus reassure, reassures them in John 14, right? We've looked at some of these passages in the, in the last couple of weeks. Starting with verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jump down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Based on the typical messianic expectation, it's a real nerdy way of saying, based on what people expected the Messiah would look like, this doesn't make any sense. Most, most people at this time, most Jews would have expected the Messiah was just going to come and run the Romans off and reestablish the earthly kingdom like the Div- Davidic throne, right? They would have think like things were in, 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 in Kings, if you read through, through Kings. But the kingdom of God turns out to be much more than that. God's finally dwelling with and within his people, and nothing can separate us from that anymore. You don't have to worry about invaders or another exile or anything like that. Like God's taking care of it once and for all. Think about Peter's sermon at Pentecost, right, in the beginning part of Acts. He quotes the prophet Joel, who foretold about the day of the coming of the kingdom. Joel chapter 2, beginning with verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. In such a short time, you're talking about in a matter of, you know, months or a year or something like Jesus, uh, Peter makes a connection between the presence of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the fulfillment of this prophecy. The Spirit was at work confirming the arrival of the kingdom of, uh, and, and God's promise to set creation back together. And you can go on and on through examples and acts of, uh, of the presence of the Spirit confirming the gospel, and, and you probably should go home and, and read Acts and think about that, right? It'd be a good, a good study for you. Uh, you can see over and over again the Holy Spirit showing up and, and, and uh, as the gospel spreads. But what does it mean for us? Okay, let's get practical. What, let's take the Bible at its word, okay, uh, that as believers we all received, if, if you believe in Jesus, you receive what, what, has, what has become to be known as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? Nerdy church word. Simply meaning that God's Spirit dwells within you as a believer in a unique way, right? Something that non-believers don't get to experience. They might, non-believers might experience this, the Spirit working around them in a sense of drawing them in, right, uh, uh, through the spread of the gospel, that kind of thing, but, but they don't experience that closeness, that indwelling of the Spirit like we as believers do. What do we do uh, with that, especially if, uh, as believers, like that we didn't necessarily grow up in that em- an environment where the presence of the Spirit was taught about, much less emphasized? Like, what do we, what do, we do with that? How do we make sense of that? Um, as we take a more practical approach from here this morning, I, I want to preference the discussion with some notes about my own experience. Like I didn't grow up in uh, what would be 
considered a charismatic church. I didn't, the, like, the gifts weren't on display every Sunday morning, and, and they're, they're like, uh, worship was pretty dry as far as that goes. Um, it just wasn't something that was, you know, that was predominant in, in our services, right? That's just my experience. And if you're like me, you had experience like that, you might feel like I do at times, that, like, my experience with the Holy Spirit was a little bit lacking, you know, maybe less real than, uh, than maybe others. I, I don't know. I, I got to admit it sometimes, like, that's, that's an insecurity for me as I talk with other Christians or hear about other, other, other people's church experience. Like, I mean, even as a worship leader, a lot of the songs that we sing come out of churches that are, like, much more in tune to uh, the Holy Spirit and that has much more of a, of a presence in their services than, than even we do. I don't know what to make of that. Some, you know, it's something that I'm wrestling through. And so um, I wrestled with it, at, you know, in, in, in terms of preparation for today. And I got to be honest, like, I don't want to teach anything ever that I've not experienced. Right. So I'm not going to stand up here and tell you something I'm not experienced or or say, hey, it should be this way or it should be that. Like, I, you know, I, I'll tell you what I know. Um, but at the same time, like there's a little bit of insecurity. They're like, man, I don't want to be like Nicodemus where Jesus is like, hey, like, aren't you a teacher in Israel and you don't know about these things? Come on. Like, right. Like I'm a worship leader. I should have this figured out. Um, all I can do is land on God's good grace. Right. Uh, I, I try. I try to open myself in faith and, and preparation for this. And it really it's been kind of a, a, a this year kind of thing that um, that I've tried to open myself up and, and, and be more available. God, make make your presence real to me. And and. And man, I, I believe, but but help my unbelief, right? It sounds familiar. Um, and it's it's so it's in this spirit that I, I want to talk through some some simple concepts. I mean, just like really simple. Con- you're gonna be like, really, we, we showed up for this. Um, but it's 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 the beginning of a, it's the beginning of a conversation, right? Um, uh, simple concepts and tools to help you have a more real and, and dynamic relationship with the spirit. Because that's what we're talking about when we talk about having a relationship with God. We're talking about a relationship with his spirit, which dwells within us, because Jesus took care of the sin problem that otherwise would have separated us from him. So, uh, that's actually our first concept. Your personal relationship with God is really uh, your personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is one of those funky ways where... um, church uses some some confusing language like you have a relationship with jesus or i feel like i'm not as close to god as whatever. but when you're talking about that you're talking about your relationship with the spirit right you have you have god the father the bible says clearly like, no one's ever seen you can't come into his presence that kind of thing because he's pure and he's holy the son makes it possible for us to uh, be made right with him and take care of sin and then after his resurrection jesus goes back to the Father, he says, I'm going to leave you with my spirit. So when we talk about a relationship with God, we're talking about a relationship with the Holy Spirit. So we don't have a relationship with a person of the Trinity that exists somewhere in some other dimension, somewhere off in heaven or whatever. The relationship that we have is with God's Holy Spirit, who's closer to you right now than anyone ever could be. You can't get away from him. He knows you. He hears your thoughts. He knows your needs and your wants. He knows where you're likely to stumble and where you'll hit it out of the park. And more than maintaining some encyclopedic knowledge of you, he loves you and is constantly moving towards you so that you can know and trust him more. You can grow in your relationship with him, right? The first point is that he's with you. Second concept is this. Your relationship with the Holy Spirit is a real relationship, right? This is really profound. Like any earthly relationship, your connection to the Holy Spirit is alive and dynamic and requires work. There's no other relationship in your life wherein you could completely ignore the other person, understand next to nothing about them, 
and give no effort to try and expect to have any real connection. But a lot of times this is how we treat the spirit, right? Try treating your wife like that. Try ignoring your wife, not talking to her, not remembering what her birthday is. That's going to go real far, right? That's going to be a really dynamic relationship for you. But that's how we treat the spirit. I got to remind myself that he's with me. I have to do the effort. I have to practice his presence. I have to invite him to be a part of whatever it is that I'm going through. It's an active thing. And, and, and you know what? When I do that, when I put that work in, he shows up. He comforts me. He gives me confidence. He puts my struggles into context because the reality uh, sets in that the God of the universe is walking alongside me in this life. I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. I just have to follow him. I just have to lean on him. Like any relationship, your personality factors in to your relationship with the spirit. It affects what that relationship looks like. If, if you're more of an introvert, God's not going to, he, he's going to meet you where you are. And, and, and so, you know, he's, you shouldn't expect that you're going to lead an evangelistic crusade. He, he might lead you to do that, but, but most likely he's going to work with your personality. He's going to work with who you are, meet you where you are so that you can grow in him. He'll definitely show you ways to be faithful and to serve and to share his love in ways that make sense for who you are and where you are. Next week, we're going to talk through uh, some of the gifts and things like that. That's where you get to this more personal idea where God's gifted you to do particular things. I'm excited uh, for that week. So uh, the next point is your relationship to the Spirit allows uh, for you to fully display the image of God that you are. So when the ancient pagans, right, when they, uh, when they in particular would think about a temple, uh, their concept wasn't that much different from what we talked about earlier with, with the Jewish temple. It's a combined space where, where God and, and man uh, would come together. But when the pagans built the temple, the last thing that they would do, uh, I- they would put in the center of the, of the temple, uh, was an image, right, that would represent particular God's influence in that area. Right, And so you could go from town to town and you would have a, a, a temple to Apollo in this town and a temple for Apollo in this town, whatever. Every town would have their own, you know, their own temple that would be to this God or that God. And in the center of that was an image. And no one would think that that image was the God, you know, itself. Right. No one would would make that mistake. It, the God, the image was just an image that represented, again, that God's influence in that area over this and that and the other agric- agricultural or, or whatever. Um, get this, this is one of the things I love about the creation story. What's the final bit of creation that God places in the garden? It's man. It's you and me. Like we are the image that represents God in his combined space. Right? We, we, we are the ones that represent his influence. And when we go out into the world and we serve, we put these boxes together and send them, send them out overseas, we give of our resources. People get a glimpse of God's influence in the lives of those who follow him, right? We don't do these things because we're nice people. We don't go and serve in the community because, we, you know, that's how we're wired. We do it because, man, God, God did a thing in me and he changed me. I used to be this and now I'm this because, because of God. And when we come here on Sundays and we worship together, we represent his good creation, celebrating his work and putting that creation back together. That's essentially what worship is, right? We come together and we celebrate what God's doing in 
and around us all the time. We believe that he's working, and, and as his followers, he's invited us to be a part of that. We go out into the world, we experience that, and we come back together, and we celebrate, we have a, man, you know what God did? And that's part of what groups is all about, coming together and, and celebrating that and learning from one another and that kind of thing. N.T. Wright, he, he uses uh, uh, the, the image of, uh, of an angled mirror, right? You ever played around with a mirror and like put it kind of at an angle, maybe like this? And you look in, you can see your buddy, and your buddy looks in, and he can see you, but you don't see yourselves. You don't see your own reflection, right? In this way, we, as God's image, reflect ourselves out into the world, his goodness, his grace, his gospel, his opportunity to follow him and be made right. Like, we, we reflect those things out into the world. And then as worshipers, we reflect a picture of that good creation made right back to God in honor and in worship right? It's a beautiful picture of the Christian life and, and, and what worship is, this, this angled mirror. The next concept, if God's spirit lives in you, what you do with your body matters. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and following, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is a really interesting point. I love what Paul's doing here on, on lots of different levels. It, Paul's primarily addressing sexual sin and licentious behavior that uh, came about as a result of a, of a false separation between uh, physical and spiritual realms. It was, it was a Greek philosophical thing that, believe it or not, like still affects our culture today. We have this split between uh, things that are physical and things that are spiritual. And you can kind of see it um, play out on 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 kind of the political level and even in the church history level, we, we tend to separate that spiritual from the physical and, and, and depending on our bent, like you kind of see how things shake out. Like liberal folks in history have tended to focus on like the physical while conservatives will tend to focus on the spiritual. Like church history is a good example of this. Like your mainline denominations in, ch in, in the American church, like those older liberal traditions tend to focus more like equal, equal rights and ending racism. Even now they get into environmental activism and that kind of thing, like very much on the, like they're out making soup kitchens and, and things like that, like doing things in the community on the physical level. Whereas like the conservative movements that came out of those and broke away from those mainline de denominations tend to emphasize more like personal life change and addressing sin and you know, like more like interactive worship and that kind of thing that's about that personal relationship, right? Tend to emphasize different things based on our persuasion. But if we take Paul at his word and we accept fully that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, then our entire being, physical and spiritual, should be consecrated for the work of the Lord. That is taking the good news of the kingdom into the world. That is serving the widows and orphans and standing up for those who don't have a voice because of the corruption of sin that has taken it away. Right? We do both. And we don't step into the mess of politics or social justice or, or personal relationships. Like we don't speak out in these areas because we want to win in those spaces. We do it because the reality is that Christ has overcome the very powers that created the mess. That and we, through the power of the Spirit, point back to the garden and, and our God-commissioned work to bring his good order to the earth. So why do we avoid sexual morality or any of the other behaviors that the New Testament lists? as unacceptable, it's because they don't fit with us as new creation, the, the new creation that we are. 
So that brings us to uh, kind of our, our, our final point, our final text is from Galatians 4, uh, beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our heart, our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slave you want to be once more? Paul says we've been adopted as children of God. Now, adoption is a legal status. It's kind of interesting to think about. I have a friend who is uh, an attorney, and she explained to me once uh, this way that, like, adoption literally severs an old relationship, right, and in order to make a new legal one, right? It, it, in the family court, it's the equivalent of, like, uh, an execution, right, or the death penalty. It's, it's the harshest, most extreme thing that family court can do. And it makes sense if you think about it. You can't legally have two sets of parents, right? In the wild environment that we live in, this is still one thing that holds true. You can't have two sets of parents. You can only have one. Uh, if you're adopted into a new family, your biological family has no claim on you, right? They're the uh, functional and relational equivalent of a neighbor, right? You might be close to them, but they have no legal standing over Oh, over, over anything. You don't get to inherit anything they have and all that. It's completely, all that's completely changed. Paul goes on to say that because we were adopted, God has placed his spirit in us so that we cry, Abba, Father. Now, there are four human beings in this world that call me dad. I paid good money to cap that number at four, right? <laughs> Can't do it. Can't do any more, right? Yes, it's an incredibly... Elite club, if you think about it, only four humans. And the level of relationship that I have with those four humans is beyond anything I'll ever have with any of you. Sorry, I love you, but it's not going to happen, right? I would do anything for these girls, and they know it. And, and when they ask me, hey, Dad, will you blank, whatever, fill in the blank, they know that I either will or I'll give them something better, right? Yeah, go ahead and have that piece of candy. Or no, because I care about your teeth, don't. Uh, you've already had seven. Uh, right? I love them. I love them. And maybe you didn't have a great picture of a father or mother, and, and so that's, you know, not exactly a helpful example. But I can promise you this. There is a familiarity and an intimacy with God that is offered through his spirit that, uh, that overcomes any bad example that you possibly could have had. And it, I get it. It can be unnerving uh, at first to dwell on the reality that God knows your every thought, every thought and, and desire and motivation, but... There's a bigger piece that comes with the realization that in spite of that, that he stays near me and that he desires to draw me out of those thoughts and desires and motivations that would threaten to put me back into slavery. It doesn't matter what kind of parents you had. It doesn't matter. His faithfulness is true and he's with you. And if this is true, then Paul's right. How can we turn back? We can't undo our adoption. You, you, can't, you, can't, you can't undo it. Why should we live as slaves? Why His offer for us today is, is, is to turn away from that slavery and to embrace anew our rightful status as children. So how do we do that? 
There's a couple things. If you've never accepted Jesus, you don't have a relationship with him and his spirit, all this stuff is kind of new, and you're like, hey, I, I want to I know some more about that. Um, you can meet me down front as we sing, and, um, and we can talk about that. And that's something that you can have today. Um, you can be baptized, and you can start following him today, and we'll get you, get you information about that. Um, if you are a believer, we're going to pray in a minute, and I would encourage you to take a moment and ask God to make his Holy Spirit known to you in a fresh way. And then after that, go home and read your Bible. Go seek him out. Invest in that relationship. You have the ability to do that, and he's waiting for you to do that. He's not going to do it for you, but he's going to show up and meet you as you seek after him. And then as a church, man, I, I, I would love for us to recommit ourselves uh, to, to joining in with the Holy Spirit in the work of reflecting the gospel into the world and, and, and the worship of creation back to our creator. Um, and I hope that this series is just the beginning of a conversation. I, this is not something where I feel like at the end of uh, next week that we're going, hey, we figured it out. We cinched up the Holy Spirit. Now we can move on to X, Y, or Z. Like I, This is something that uh, is the beginning of, of a conversation where as, as, as staff and elders, we're praying that, um, that God's Spirit be more, more present and active uh, in, in our time together. And so, um, yeah, so let me pray for us and then... Uh, God, we love you. Um, We're so thankful that you are faithful. God, first to to take care of those things that would have separated us from you for eternity. That God, you willingly sent your son to pay our debt. And God, that allows us to be in your presence even now. And God, so we receive that. God, if there's someone here who's never heard that, God, I pray that you uh, move in them and allow us to come alongside them and help them learn what it means to follow you. God, as believers, as, as a church, we offer ourselves up to you. We pray, Lord, that you um, work against those things in our life and in our culture that would want to put us back into slavery would shake our confidence in the things that you say about us that, that we are indeed your image and that you love us as children so we love you we thank you for this morning we just ask that you be with us now it's in Christ's name we pray